This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is seeing our true potential character. In the first half, Christine Hansen shares her address, Lift Up Thine Eyes to the Mountains. Then in the second half, David Brooks speaks on Finding the Road to Character. I liked a vacation in the mountains, yet until the summer of 1999, I had never traveled to nearby Wyoming to visit the Grand Tetons. A friend and I arrived at the National Park in the late afternoon. As we drove along the park road to get closer to those majestic peaks, we noticed an area where we could pull off and read signs telling us the names and geologic history of the mountains. As we stood outside the car, drinking in the beauty of the scene, a van pulled off the road and parked beside our car, and a couple, probably in their early 40s, got out to admire the mountains, too. I noticed that the license plate on their van indicated they were from one of the flat Midwestern states, and I thought perhaps the mountains would be especially awe-inspiring to them. As I turned to go back to the car, I noticed in the rear of their van two teenage boys, presumably the sons of this couple, seated with their backs to the Grand Tetons and showing absolutely no interest in looking at them. One boy had headphones on and his eyes shut, apparently caught up in whatever he was listening to. The other had his nose in a magazine, doggedly reading, seemingly oblivious to the beauty that surrounded him. Now, I don't know why these two boys were ignoring the view. Maybe it was the last day of their trip and they had already seen enough. But unfairly or not, I imagined that they had come on vacation at their parents' insistence, and now, just to show how cool they were, they were refusing to be impressed by the sights their parents had brought them to see. As I drove away from this family, I thought that many of us often behave in the way these boys did. There are inspiring things our Father in Heaven wants to show us and wonderful experiences He wants to give us, yet we are so absorbed in trivial worldly interests that we sometimes turn our backs to the thrilling views of eternity that are available if we would only lift our eyes and see. Today my desire is to help us all lift our eyes and see the heights to which we may aspire if we will take full advantage of the opportunities offered us here. Brigham Young University exists in large part to help the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints fulfill its mission. The mission of the university is to assist individuals in their quest for perfection and eternal life. The mission statement declares that all students at BYU should be taught the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any education is inadequate which does not emphasize that His is the only name given under heaven whereby mankind may be saved. As President Spencer W. Kimball said in a 1967 address, BYU should provide education for eternity. The faculty here, he stated, have a double heritage and a double responsibility to preserve and teach not only the knowledge of men, but the revealed truths sent from heaven. Included with the mission statement are the aims of a BYU education, approved by the Board of Trustees in 1995. The four aims are to enlarge the intellect, strengthen the spirit, build character, and prepare for lifelong learning and service. We faculty members are frequently encouraged to incorporate the four aims into our teaching. To me, each of these aims is like a mountain peak. Or, more accurately, each is like a facet of a single towering mountain that we are invited not only to look at but to climb. In many ways, we faculty can only do like the parents in the story I related. We can bring you students to the mountain, we can encourage you, and we can try to model the behavior that we hope you will choose. But you must make the effort to lift your eyes and then to scale the peak through your diligence. 
This university will achieve its divine destiny only as faculty, staff, and students unite and help each other in the climb upward. I wish to speak about each of the four aims, suggesting things that may help us ascend together. I propose that in striving to achieve the aims of a BYU education, you will simultaneously be advancing in your quest for perfection and eternal life, a quest we must always remember is made possible only through the love and the atonement of the Savior. I will start with a third aim, building character, for reasons that I think will become clear. For centuries, the ultimate goal of education in Western civilization was the formation of students' character. True, in each period of the past, students were taught what was known in every branch of learning, but they were taught such things as oratory, languages, philosophy, literature, music, and mathematics to increase their wisdom and judgment and enable them to serve their societies. Education was to engender virtue, and the morality of students was the constant concern of most teachers from ancient Greece through the first hundred-plus years of the United States. In this country, up until about 1890, the last course that students took at college was moral philosophy, a course considered so important it was usually taught by the college president. Very few universities now attempt anything in the way of molding students' character. Most have capitulated to the relatively recent belief that the goal of higher education is to specialize in some area of learning so that one has the credentials to get a job and earn money, preferably lots of it. I hope you will be grateful that one of the aims of BYU is not to prepare you to become wealthy, but to build your character. President Kimball taught that BYU has no justification for its existence unless it builds character, creates and develops faith, and makes men and women of strength and courage, fortitude, and service. It is not justified on an academic basis only. How can your experience at BYU help you develop the kind of Christ-like character the Ames document describes? Let me suggest a few things to consider. Your character is formed by the things you think about, the daily decisions you make, and the actions that follow. How true are the words of this old saying, So a thought, reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap an eternal destiny. How you choose to use your time, treat your family, interact with your friends and roommates, serve your employer, do your homework, fulfill your church callings, all of these decisions and actions will contribute to your character. The Honor Code aims to instill in us those moral virtues encompassed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you will follow both the spirit and the letter of the Honor Code, you will develop traits of honesty, integrity, humility, and benevolence that will make you the kind of person who is sought after as a friend, an employee, and a spouse. Your pledging to obey the Honor Code is an act of no small importance. Too many people today too easily break their promises and set aside commitments when it is no longer convenient to honor them. Such people diminish their own character and demonstrate the truth of the words spoken by Sir Thomas More in Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons. In this play, More refuses to swear to the act of succession because he cannot in good conscience approve of some of King Henry VIII's actions. When More is in danger of losing his life because of his refusal, his daughter urges him to swear the oath outwardly, but in his heart to think otherwise. More replies, What is an oath then but words we say to God? When a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his hands, like water, and if he opens his fingers then, he needn't hope to find himself again.
To make any commitment and then violate your promise is to let your character dribble away like water between your fingers. Honor the commitments you have made to parents, friends, roommates, teachers, employers, your bishop, and the Lord. Your character will grow more firm and steady each time you set aside your desire to do what is convenient and instead do what is right. Let me suggest something else you might consider as you think about character development. In the October 2000 General Conference of the Church, President Boyd K. Packer told of receiving his patriarchal blessing at the age of 18 after he had entered military service. The patriarch told Brother Packer, Guard and protect your body. Take nothing into it that will harm the organs thereof, because it is sacred. It is the instrument of your mind and the foundation of your character. President Packer reiterated those words to all of us. Your body really is the instrument of your mind and the foundation of your character. I think of these words now as I walk across campus and pass students who have disabilities. Coping with blindness, deafness, motor impairments, and other challenges, these students have not allowed less-than-perfect bodies to stop them from seizing the opportunity to improve their minds. They have no doubt faced barriers in the temptation to settle for something less than a college education. But in overcoming adversity, they have built great strength of character. Their bodies, perhaps because of their disabilities, have become the foundation of a character marked by courage and persistence. It is likewise with those who battle invisible challenges of chronic illness or mental and emotional conditions. They, too, can forge a sterling character in the fire of adversity. The same can be true for all of us. If we realize that our body is a great gift from God and our mortal parents, and if we treat that body with wisdom and respect, we can all lay the foundation for a strong character. All around us today we see two extremes where the body is concerned. At one extreme are those who seem to hate their bodies, scarring and defacing them with tattoos and multiple piercings. They use drugs and other substances that weaken and addict their bodies. To me, such people seem to have a tormented, unhappy character. At the other extreme are those who are far too vain about their bodies, much too preoccupied with appearance. Goaded by media images of models and movie stars, they try to shape their bodies into an unrealistic ideal through sometimes life-threatening practices. They spend excessively on fashion clothing and other products to use in or on the body. Trying to meet the world's narrow, shallow, and ever-changing standard of beauty, they may neglect to develop deeper, more lasting character traits. Such preoccupation with appearance calls to mind the words of Moroni, who, when he saw our day in vision, wrote this, I know that ye do walk in the pride of your hearts, and there are none save a few only who do not lift themselves up in the pride of their hearts unto the wearing of very fine apparel. For behold, ye do love money and your substance and your fine apparel more than ye love the poor and needy, the sick and the afflicted. Then he asks, Why do ye adorn yourselves with that which hath no life, and yet suffer the hungry and the needy and the naked and the sick and the afflicted to pass by you and notice them not? In another verse he suggests an answer to his own question. People do these things for the praise of the world. They esteem being in fashion and peer approval more than they esteem their fellow men and the approbation of God. In contrast to these extremes, the gospel teaches us to make our bodies attractive by keeping them clean, neatly groomed, and modestly clothed, and to discipline our bodies by controlling our physical appetites. 
May I suggest that following a daily regimen that includes sufficient sleep, I know that's hard for students, exercise, a healthy diet, and staying clean and well-groomed can in itself contribute to the development of character. Keeping up such discipline can present a challenge to students or anyone else. Faced with homework, tests, and other responsibilities, it's easy to excuse ourselves for lapses in a healthy routine by insisting we're just too busy. But if we persist in an unwise course for very long, we find ourselves fatigued, sick, or depressed, unable to accomplish the physical and mental work we need to do. As President Packer said, your body really is the instrument of your mind. I want to speak about the first and second aims of a BYU education, enlarging the intellect and strengthening the spirit together. As far as I can tell, when these two activities are correctly understood, you can't do one without the other. I have heard some people speak of the intellect and the spirit as if they were diametrically opposed, warning that those who engage deeply in intellectual pursuits will lose their testimonies. However, sociologists who have studied members of our Church have concluded the opposite. Higher levels of education are strongly correlated with indicators of faithfulness, such as prayer and scripture study, tithing, missionary service, and temple marriage. This is not to say that one must have diplomas and degrees to be a stalwart member of the Church. Some of the greatest spiritual giants in my life had little formal education. But I propose that those who have attained a high degree of spirituality are also those whose minds are most alive to the wonders of creation and the noblest achievements of the human race. I submit that intellectual and spiritual pursuits not only can but should be harmonized so that the most effective learning will take place as well as the learning that will contribute to our spiritual safety. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught, We consider that God has created man with a mind capable of instruction and a faculty that may be enlarged in proportion to the heat and diligence given to the light communicated from heaven to the intellect, and that the nearer a man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire for sin. This statement suggests that the intellect and the spirit are developed simultaneously and that the greater one grows in spiritual stature, the greater one will grow in intellectual ability as well. Brigham Young described the scope of our religion thus, It matters not what the subject be if it tends to improve the mind, exalt the feelings, and enlarge the capacity. The truth that is in all the arts and sciences forms a part of our religion. These familiar verses from the Doctrine and Covenants sum up well the encompassing nature of what the Lord expects us to teach and learn. Teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you, that you may be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the laws of the gospel, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand, of things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations, and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms. This scripture describes well the education we try to give students at BYU. In your religion courses, you will be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in the laws of the gospel, and in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God. I hope you will not be dismayed when your religion professors are more rigorous and demanding than the typical Sunday school teacher. The gospel is a vast topic, and it can't be learned casually. In addition to studying the gospel, the scripture implies we should study everything else from astronomy to zoology. We often stop quoting the verses from section 88 at this point, but let us read the next verse which explains why we should learn about so many things. 
that ye may be prepared in all things when I, the Lord, shall send you again to magnify the calling whereunto I have called you and the mission with which I have commissioned you. This scripture states simply that the education we gain in the gospel and other fields is to prepare us for the callings that the Lord will give us. I think we could do no better than to look at the current leaders of the Church to see excellent examples of people who magnify their callings precisely because they blend profound knowledge and testimonies of the gospel with broad learning and experience in various professions. For example, President Hinckley's experience with and understanding of the mass media have enabled him to represent the Church in a positive light to millions who are not members. I could multiply examples, but the point is clear. The Lord and His Church need people who have both spiritual understanding and excellent educational preparation. We don't know what callings may yet come to us, but we should consider every subject we study a part of our preparation. Thus, it is important to approach our studies with an inquiring and an enthusiastic attitude. Occasionally, students will ask why so many courses are required in general education. Some have even seriously suggested that if they already know what they want to major in, they shouldn't be required to take general education. Allow me to let Albert Einstein and then Brigham Young respond to that argument. Einstein said it is not enough to teach a man a specialty. Through it, he may become a useful machine, but not a harmoniously developed personality. It is essential that the student acquire an understanding and a lively feeling for value. He must acquire a vivid sense of the beautiful and the morally good. Otherwise, he, with his specialized knowledge, more closely resembles a well-trained dog. (laughs) That's Einstein, not me. Premature specialization on the grounds of immediate usefulness kills the spirit on which all cultural life depends, specialized knowledge included. Now Brigham Young. Let us not narrow ourselves up, for the world, with all its variety of useful information and its rich hoard of hidden treasure, is before us, and eternity, with all its sparkling, lofty aspirations and unspeakable glories, is before us and ready to aid us in the scale of advancement and every useful improvement. Can we imagine that Jesus, the creator of this earth and everything in it, lacked any kind of knowledge as he prepared to fulfill the assignment his Father gave him to go down and make an earth whereon we might dwell? I urge you to give serious effort to your general education courses. Rather than think of them as something to get out of the way, think of them as a way of becoming more like the Savior and of seeing his hand in all creation. It's been said that major education prepares you to make a living, but general education prepares you to make a life. You will succeed more in your chosen profession if you are broadly educated because you will be more versatile and more able to see how details relate to each other and create the big picture. Your employer will be able to entrust you with more responsibilities as you gain experience. Furthermore, your leisure time will be spent in a more ennobling way if you learn to appreciate good art, music, literature, drama, dance, and film than if you succumb to consuming most of the entertainments that popular culture offers you. So much of it is unworthy of your time, attention, and money. I hope you'll approach your studies with the attitude demonstrated twenty-some years ago by a young man on this campus who was chosen to be a Rhodes Scholar, a rare achievement. When he won that honor, the campus newspaper published an interview in which he said that as he approached the library to study, he felt much the same way as when he approached church on Sundays to attend his meetings. Both study and worship were for him a time of spiritual edification. I commend that approach to you. 
This young man was an example of what Elder Neil A. Maxwell has called the disciple scholar. For a disciple of Jesus Christ, Elder Maxwell said, academic scholarship is a form of worship. It is actually another dimension of consecration. Hence, one who seeks to be a disciple scholar will take both scholarship and discipleship seriously, and likewise gospel covenants. For the disciple scholar, the first and second great commandments frame and prioritize life. How else could one worship God with all of one's heart, might, mind, and strength. Consecrated scholarship, Elder Maxwell continued, thus converges both the life of the mind and of the spirit. However, Elder Maxwell qualifies his urging that we worship God with our minds through scholarship. The first qualification is that there is no democracy among truths. Not all truths are of equal significance. The revealed truths of the gospel are more important and do take precedence over the truths that have been forged out of the collective efforts of human beings. It's good to know both, but if we must on occasion choose where to put our allegiance, we should choose revealed truths. The second qualification is this. Genius without meekness is not enough to qualify for discipleship. The disciple scholar blends intellectual traits with spiritual ones that often seem their opposite. Such a person tempers curiosity with obedience, questioning with submissiveness, zeal for knowledge with faith and humility, and striving to excel with brotherly kindness. Perhaps this is part of what is meant by the encouragement to seek learning even by study and also by faith. I recall a time when I was in a BYU ward where one of the bishop's counselors was an undergraduate student with what I judged to be fairly ordinary intellectual talents, but he had extraordinary faith and desire to obey. In a sacrament meeting, he told of an experience he had had the previous week. With a deadline for a paper looming before him, he was hard at work writing one afternoon when a knock came at the door. A member of the ward needed his help. This young counselor knew that if he took the time to serve, he would be hard-pressed to finish his paper and do a good job on it, but he chose to serve. He came back to his paper with the deadline now only hours away. He told us he knelt and asked his Heavenly Father to let words flow into his mind. When he went back to his work, his prayer was answered in just the way he had asked. Words flowed into his mind, and he was able to complete his assignment on time. He learned not only by study, but also by faith. The fourth aim of a BYU education is to prepare you for lifelong learning and service. As I stated earlier, it's not to prepare you to make a lot of money. Nevertheless, statistics show that on average those with college degrees earn significantly more than those with less education. Thus, most of you will become comparatively wealthy simply as a byproduct of earning a degree. Notice I said comparatively wealthy, and the comparison group is much of the population in the rest of the world. On an NPR program I heard recently, it was said that one billion people on this earth live on one dollar a day, and another two billion live on two dollars a day. Think of those figures as you listen to these statistics I gleaned recently from the newspaper. Almost $7 billion were spent in the U.S. last year on cosmetics. Some $13 billion was spent on chocolate. Another $7 billion spent on videotape rentals. $20 billion at jewelry stores and $24 billion at liquor stores. Altogether, that totals $71 billion. In the meantime, an organization called the Bread for the World Institute estimates that it would take only about $4 billion a year over the next 15 years to subtract 512 million people from the 800 million people worldwide who suffer from hunger. These figures challenge us all to consider whether we have the right priorities where the use of our means is concerned. Those who are privileged to enter to learn at BYU have an obligation to then go forth to serve. 
Let me read this long passage from the Ames. Since a decreasing fraction of the Church membership can be admitted to study at BYU, it is ever more important that those who are admitted use their talents to build the Kingdom of God on the earth. Students should learn then demonstrate that their ultimate allegiance is to higher values, principles, and human commitments rather than to mere self-interest. By doing this, BYU graduates can counter the destructive and often materialistic self-centeredness and worldliness that afflict modern society. A service ethic should permeate every part of BYU's activities, from the admissions process through the curriculum and extracurricular experiences to the moment of graduation. This ethic should also permeate each student's heart, leading him or her to the ultimate wellspring of charity, the love for others that Christ bestows on His followers. The pure love of Christ will fill our hearts as we serve the less fortunate. The self-centeredness of those who ignore the poor and the needy is well depicted in a mural painted by the great Latter-day Saint artist Minerva Teichert on a wall of the World Room in the Manti Temple. Part of the murals in this room show the grand march of Gentile history from the Tower of Babel to the sailing of Columbus. In one, against the backdrop of a great and spacious building, are a number of colorful, brightly lit figures who represent the wealthy, powerful, learned, and successful people of the world, those who have made things happen and have left their mark. In contrast to these grand figures are a number of darker figures in the foreground that one almost doesn't notice at first. They represent a homeless family, a mother and her lame son, a crippled soldier who has lost a leg in battle, a woman holding the limp body of her child in her arms, another woman clutching her head in despair, and a family of immigrants driven by oppression to seek a new life in an unseen land. Surveying this mural, one realizes with shock that the rich and powerful don't even glance at the poor and needy on the margins of their worldly parade. Perhaps these words from Jacob explain how this could happen. Because they are rich, they despise the poor, and they persecute the meek, and their hearts are upon their treasures, wherefore their treasure is their God. We know that riches are not in themselves bad. Rather, it is the way we use riches that leads either to approbation or condemnation. We learn also from Jacob that if we seek first for the kingdom of God and obtain a hope in Christ, we may obtain riches if we seek them. But he adds a powerful caution. We should seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, and to feed the hungry, and to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. As with riches, fame is not necessarily bad if it comes from doing something good. Certainly we are grateful to know the story of Columbus, whose voyage prepared the way for a new nation where freedom would flourish and the gospel could be restored. A deed like his is worthy of mention in the world's history. But remember that one can also do important service that likely won't be recorded by historians. These words from George Eliot's Middlemarch express an important truth. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Whether you serve in relative obscurity as a parent or a primary teacher, or whether you serve in the limelight as a government official or a prominent Church leader, your service is equally significant to its beneficiaries, and it is known to the Lord. Together, the four aims aspire to promote an education that helps students integrate all parts of their university experience into a fundamentally sacred way of life. 
No other university I know of, except our sister campuses in Hawaii and Idaho, aspires to such a lofty goal. Because of the seriousness of what we're about, some of you may be thinking that life at BYU will be something like a cross between boot camp and a never-ending church meeting. (laughs) You may be asking yourselves, isn't there going to be any fun here? The answer, of course, is yes. You will find plenty of fun in adventures with roommates and friends, activities in your ward and residence halls, at sporting events, concerts and dances, and occasionally even in the classroom. I don't need to wish for you that you will have fun. It will happen. But I do wish for you that when you look back years from now, you will see that your college years were much more than fun. I wish for you the peace of mind that comes from knowing you honored commitments, treated friends and associates in a Christ-like way, and increased in self-discipline and integrity. I hope you will feel a humble gratitude from knowing that you dedicated, even consecrated yourself to improving your intellectual talents and increasing your spirituality. I pray that because you have tasted the joy that comes from service, you will seek to serve continually throughout your life. Such a sweet self-assessment can be yours years hence. If you do not content yourself now with lounging comfortably in a base camp in the foothills, when with some exertion you could be standing on the summit of a great mountain. I express my confidence in you. You are a chosen generation, and the Lord loves you and will bless you in all your righteous endeavors. I am grateful for that testimony, and I bear it to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Seeing Our True Potential Character. We have just heard from Christine Hansen. After the break, we will return with David Brooks for Finding the Road to Character. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is seeing our true potential character. Next is David Brooks, a political and cultural commentator and op-ed columnist for the New York Times at the time of this address, titled Finding the Road to Character. My life started out in unpredictable form. I grew up in Greenwich Village in the 60s uh, to somewhat left-wing parents. Uh, When I was five, they took me to a B-in where hippies would just go to B. Uh, And one of the things they did was they set a garbage can on fire and threw their wallets into it to demonstrate their liberation from money and material things. And I was five and I saw a $5 bill on fire in the garbage can. So I broke from the crowd, reached into the fire, grabbed the money and ran away. (laughs) And that was my first step over to the right. Um, and, and then when I was seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear and decided I wanted to become a writer. Uh, I remember in high school, I was already deeply into writing. I wanted to date a woman named Bernice. She didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. But those were her values. Um, and then when I was 18, the admissions officers at Columbia University, Brown and Wesleyan, decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Um, and the saying about Chicago it's a very heavy cerebral place the saying about it is it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students like Thomas Aquinas and so they have t-shirts they wear that says sure it works in practice but does it work in theory so super intellectual um, and I was pretty cerebral in those days I did a double major in history and celibacy while I was at Chicago um, 
But I did have the big break of my life that happened there, which was that William F. Buckley, a prominent columnist, came to campus, and I wrote a very mean parody of him for being a name-dropping blowhard, which he apparently found funny, because at the end of his speech, he said to the student body, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I want to give you a job. And that was the big break of my life. Now, sadly, I was not in the audience. Um, (laughs) But I called him up three years later, and the job was there. And uh, I was set. And my career has had a pretty steady and very boring trajectory. I'm a conservative columnist at the New York Times, which is a job I liken to being the chief rabbi at Mecca. Um, (laughs) I do a show on PBS called The News Hour, which... It's a very great show that was formerly hosted by Jim Lehrer, which it's a show, I think, with a lot of civility, great values, but a certain seasoned audience. So if a 93-year-old lady comes up to me in the airport, I know what she's going to say. I don't watch your show, but my mother loves it. (laughs) And so um, we're very big in the hospice community. Uh, um, And then I started writing these books and reading these books. And as I've written more books and read more books, as I get older, I get a little more sensitive, a little more feminine. I'm the only American man who finished that book, Eat, Pray, Love, if you remember that thing. Uh, By page 123, I was actually lactating, which was surprising uh, to me. Um, And then I wrote, four years ago, a book called The Road to Character, a book on character. And I learned that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character. And even... Reading a book on character doesn't give you a good character. And so when you walk through the career side of life, you walk with a certain set of values. And we take kids who start with the intensity of life and we feed them into the college admissions process, which teaches them that status and achievement are at the core of life. And then they get out and they lead the kind of life that I led, which was a life in the meritocracy, trying to make it, trying to achieve, trying to contribute, trying to build up an identity. And this meritocracy does give us a lot of achievement. People have, are driving here from Salt Lake City, all these great companies that are lining the highway, and they are to be saluted and honored. But there are things in the meritocracy that if you take it unadulterated with no other moral system are actually lies. The first lie of the meritocracy is that career success makes you happy. And I'm the poster child for that's not true. The second lie of the meritocracy is the lie of self-sufficiency that you can make yourself happy. That if you can win one more victory, lose 15 pounds, get really good at yoga, you'll be happy. You ask people at the end of their lives what made them happy, it was not self-sufficiency, it was moments of utter dependency when they were utterly dependent on somebody else and somebody else was utterly dependent on them. The third lie is that life is an individual journey. We buy kids this book called Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. And in that book, there's an individual kid graduating from college, and his life is a series of experiences on the way up to success. He has no friends, he has no relationships, he has no connections, because we think of life as an individual journey. If you give that book to immigrant groups, they hate that book, because that's not life as they experience it. The fourth lie is that you can create your own truth. You have to come up with your own worldview. That truth is not something outside of you, locked into the natural order of the universe. It's something you create on your own. And if you tell people that you have to create their own truth very often, they will not be able to do that. And then there are all the lies of the meritocracy and the culture of the meritocracy. That you are what you accomplish, that you earn dignity and respect by attaching yourself to prestigious brands. The emotional of the meritocracy is conditional love, 
You earn your way to be loved. The anthropology of the meritocracy is that you're not a soul to be saved. You're a set of skills to be maximized. And the big lie at the head of the meritocracy, which is the really corrosive thing, is that people who've achieved more are worth more than other people. And if you want to tear apart your society, that's a good lie to introduce. A few years ago, there was an Israeli daycare center that had a problem. Parents were coming in late to pick up the kids. And so they imposed fines on the parents who came in late. The number of parents who came in late doubled. And that's because before, picking up your kid on time was a moral responsibility of the teacher so they could go home. Once the fine was imposed, it was no longer a moral responsibility. It was an economic transaction. The moral lens had been taken away and the economic lens had been put up. And our society does a reasonably good job, just in the course of daily life, of taking off the moral lens and helping us see life through an economic lens, of making us more morally numb. And that certainly happened in my life over the course of achieving far more career success than I ever thought I did. I was writing and writing as a lonely profession, and then when I succeeded, I found out it was lonelier still. For the road to character, I was on book tour for 99 consecutive days, and I ate 42 consecutive meals alone at an airport, airplane, or hotel. And in the course of the career, just by drifting along and paying too much attention to those things, you come to desire the wrong things. You desire reputation, and at least in my case, you come to idolize time, you value productivity over people. Instead of just settling into deep relationship with people, you've always got a clock in your head, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do that. And so you sort of glide through people. And the wages of sin are sin. And my own ditch came in 2013. My kids had left home or were leaving home for college. My marriage had ended. My friendships were in the conservative movement. I wasn't part of that movement anymore. And so I was living alone in an apartment, not having anybody over, trying to work my way through it. Workaholism is a very good way to avoid any spiritual and emotional problem. And the way I described it in the book is that if you went to my kitchen, because I wasn't having people over, you open the drawer where there should have been silverware, there was just post-it notes. And if you open the drawer where there should have been plates, it was just stationary, it was just working. And I was suffering the logical end of the cultural meritocracy, which is to be detached from other people. A lone monad on the way up. And as I was suffering from this, a lot of people were. 35% of Americans over 45 say they're chronically lonely. The largest growing religious organization is unaffiliated. The largest growing political movement is unaffiliated. Since 1999, the suicide rate is up 30%. Since 2011, the teenage suicide rate is up 70%. College depression rates have doubled in the last 10 years. There are a lot of people who just are very lonely, very isolated, and very afraid. And part of it is the culture of the meritocracy. Part of it is probably the internet. The internet is a source of bad communication. We don't commute from our hearts and souls on the internet. We communicate through our egos, comparison. My life is better than yours, that's Instagram. Your opinions are stupider than mine, that's Twitter. <laughs> We're not programmed and we weren't created to communicate on this shallow level. And somehow we've entered an age of bad generalization. We don't see each other well. Liberals believe that. Evangelicals believe that. LDS believes that. All groups, all stereotypes, bad generalizations, not seeing the heart and soul of each person, but just a bunch of bad labels. And this, to me, is the core problem that our democratic character has to be faced with. 
Many of our society's great problems flow from people not feeling seen and known. Blacks feeling that their daily experience is not understood by whites, rural people not feeling seen by coastal elites, depressed young people not feeling understood by anyone, people across the political divides looking at angry incomprehension at one another, employees feeling invisible at work, husbands and wives in broken marriages, realizing that the person who should know them best actually has no clue. And so this, to me, is the core democratic trait that we all have to get a little better at. And that is the trait of seeing each other deeply and being deeply seen. It's a question of epistemology, of understanding each other. John Ruskin, one of my heroes, said, the greatest thing a human soul ever does in this world is to see something and tell what it saw in a plain way. Hundreds can talk for one who can think, but thousands can think for one who can see. And when you think about it, there's one skill at the center of any healthy family, company, classroom, community, university, or nation. The ability to see someone else deeply, to know another person profoundly, to make them feel heard and understood. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking, what is this skill? How do you get good at it? The first thing we think about, it's not a detached intellectual skill, it's an emotional form of knowing. Our master here is St. Augustine, who said that knowledge is a form of love. Love is a focus of attention. Love is a motivational state to learn more about another. Love is a drive to move in harmony with another. We separate the heart and the head, but Augustine never did that. And when you think about the Bible, you think about all those different cases where people were misseen and misunderstood. In Luke, Jesus is not even recognized by his own disciples. On the road for the Good Samaritan, the Levite sees the injured guy by the side of the road, but he doesn't really see him. Only the Samaritan sees him. They're always playing with different sorts of recognition. The biblical word for know in Hebrew is yada, and it has dozens of different usage which cross our lines of head and heart, meaning everything from sexual intercourse to being loyal to someone to entering into covenant with people. And so The Bible is written in a language that puts deep knowledge and deep emotion at the heart of what we do. And so I've tried to study people who are really good at seeing and knowing and making you feel known. And I have this thing at the Aspen Institute called Weave the Social Fabric Project. We go around the country and we look at people who are great at building communities, who are great at relationship. And we call them weavers. And they are geniuses at making you feel heard and understood. That's what they do. And so I look, what do they do? How do they do this? Well, one of the things they do is they plant themselves down somewhere. They're not from anywhere. They're not cosmopolitans. They've picked one spot of ground that they really care about, and they know where they're from. They know who their people are. They're rooted. There's a woman I met who I was describing earlier, some students named Aisha Butler in Chicago. And Aisha was living in Englewood, which is a tough neighborhood in Chicago. And she was going to move out because it was dangerous and she had a nine-year-old girl. And on the day she was moving out, she looked across the street and saw a girl in a pink dress playing in an empty lot with broken bottles. And she turned to her husband and said, we're not going to leave that. We're not going to just be another family that left that. She planted herself down in Englewood. She Googled volunteer in Englewood. She just volunteered and volunteered. Now runs the big community organization there. And if you go to the stores in Englewood, there are t-shirts that say, proud daughter of Englewood, proud son of Englewood. 
So she made a commitment to a place. One of my favorite expressions comes from psychology. It says that all of life is a series of daring adventures from a secure base. You know who you are, you've planted themselves down, you therefore have the security to go abroad. And a lot of the weavers we, um, we admire, they love being the only person like them in the room. There's a woman named um, Sarah Heminger, who's a favorite of ours, grew up in Indiana. Her dad was in the church and found out that their pastor was embezzling money. So their dad reported it. And instead of getting rid of the pastor, they shunned Sarah's family. So she grew up for eight years not being invited to parties, sometimes at Christmas parties for her own grandmother's house. She and her brother had to sit in a different room because they were shunned. She knew what true isolation was. Then she went to Johns Hopkins. She was riding a bus in Baltimore and saw some kids outside of school. And she saw those kids, young African-American kids in Baltimore, and said, I know exactly what they're feeling. I recognize that isolation. And so she put herself in the context of spending her life now with those kids, people completely unlike herself, a Midwestern white girl. But they get a thrill out of people completely unlike themselves and making that human bond and being transparent. And this is the third straight of people who know others deeply. They're emotionally transparent. A few years ago, my wife and I joined a community. We were, uh, I was invited over to their house um, in about 2015. And it was a couple named Kathy and David. And Kathy and David had a friend in the D.C. public schools who had a friend whose mom had health and other issues, so had often had nothing to eat and no place to go. And they said, well, James can stay with us. And then James had a friend, and that kid had a friend, and that kid had a friend. And by the time I came there in 2015, there were like 40 kids around the dinner table and 15 sleeping around various houses. They created this big chosen family. And I walk in, and I'm a reticent middle-aged white guy, and I reach out to shake the hand of one of the kids, and he says, we really don't shake hands here. We hug here. And so I'm not the huggiest person on the face of the earth, but we've been going back and have become part of this community for the past four years, and we hug 40 people on the way in and hug 40 people on the way out. And what the kids do is they beam emotional transparency at you and they demand you from it. And so they rewire you into a different sort of person. The reticent guy who, like, a little standoffish, suddenly becomes reasonably good at being emotionally transparent by throwing emotion at other people and having them receive. I took my daughter there once. She said, that's the warmest place I've ever been in my life. And that makes you a much more open person. Uh, I was telling students earlier today, I was at a festival a couple weeks ago, and they gave us song lyrics, and they said, pick a stranger in the audience and sing this song into that person's eyes. Uh, Three years ago, I would have had a stroke. (laughs) But now I can be a little more open because I was trained by these kids in AOK. The fourth thing weavers have done that enables them to know others and be deeply known is they've learned to use their suffering well. We all have moments of suffering, but we can either be broken by those moments or we can be broken open by them. Some people are broken. They build a fragile shell. They curl in. They are afraid to be touched. The part of themselves that is hurting, they just want to shell it over. And those people usually lash out in anger and resentment. There's a saying that pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. But other people, they get broken open. They get more and more vulnerable, more open, 
They live their life at a deeper level. The theologian Paul Tillich said that what moments of suffering does is they interrupt your life and they remind you you're not the person you thought you were. They carve through what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul and reveal a cavity below, and then they carve through that and reveal a cavity below. You just see deeper into yourself than you ever knew existed. And you realize when you see into those depths that only spiritual and emotional food will fill those voids. And so they begin to live life at a deeper level. I had a friend who said that when her first daughter was born, she realized she loved her more than evolution required. And I've always liked that because it speaks to that deeper level. Some things we do to pass along our genes, but some things down in the deeps of ourselves, there is just some enchanted level, which is where we can find our illimitable ability to care for one another. One of the weavers we met in Ohio is a woman named Sarah Atkins, who had the worst thing happen to you that is possible to imagine. She was out antiquing with her mom, and she came home one Sunday evening and opened the door and expected to see her kids and her husband. She said, I'm home, mommy's home. And no response. There's a mattress covering the doorway leading to the basement. She thinks they're playing hide and seek. She rushes down. She sees her husband slumped over. She sees her child on the sofa with what looks like chocolate around him. She feels that he's gone cold. Her husband had killed their kids and himself. Now she lives life as pure service. She helps women who've suffered from violence. She's a free pharmacy. She teaches at Ohio University. Her life is free openness and care. Someone who has suffered unimaginably and yet lives with what Richard Rohr calls a bright sadness. She's seen the worst of the worlds, but there's a brightness and a humor about her and agape, their selfless love that she gives out. She told me, I do it because I'm angry at him. Whatever he tried to do to me, he's not going to do it. I'm going to make a difference in the world. And that's someone who lives her life openly because whatever she had to lose, she can lose. And she's going to be open through it all. When you look at these people and how good they are at it, you realize that deep seeing is so difficult. And yet you look around and it happens all the time. I have a friend whose daughter is in second grade and she was struggling. And the teacher said to her, you know, you're really good at thinking before you speak and at that moment the girl felt known and respected and understood and it sort of turned around her whole year because the teacher had seen into her Anne wrote a book and one of the chapters is about a place called the Oaks Academy in Indianapolis one of the little kids was acting out and the teacher said to him your conscience must be really small today and the kid didn't know what a conscience was but he knew he didn't want to have a small one And so again, the great teachers have the ability to look in and see into the students. And great friends have that, and great spouses have that. I often think of the time, that happened a few weeks ago, I've mentioned this once or twice in public, my wife Anne was by the front door of our house, and the door was open, and she happened to be looking at an orchid uh, that we have by the front door, and I looked up from whatever I was doing, and I just saw her silhouette pondering the orchid. And it was that weird moment that spouses have when you think, wow, I really know her. And it's one of those moments when reality sort of stops and you become aware of a depth that exists in even the ordinary moments of life and the deliciousness of knowing someone deeply and also a deliciousness when somebody sees you. The connections that can happen between people are truly amazing. 
I had a, an acquaintance named Douglas Hofstetter, who's an Indiana University cognitive scientist. He was sabbatical with his wife, Carol, and their two kids who were then like three and five when Carol died suddenly. And he kept a picture of Carol on the dresser in his bedroom every day, and he looked at it every day. Uh, but one day he looked at it with special attention, and he wrote about what he sensed. I looked at her face, and I looked so deeply that I felt I was behind her eyes. And all at once I found myself saying as tears flowed, that's me, that's me. And those simple words brought back many thoughts that I'd had before about the fusion of our souls into one higher level entity, about the fact that at the core of both our souls lay our identical hopes and dreams for our children, about the notion that those hopes were not separate or distinct hopes, but were just one kind of hope, one clear thing that defined us both, that wielded us into a unit, the kind of unit I had but dimly imagined before being married and having children. I realized that though Carol had died, the core piece of her had not died at all, and that it had lived on very determinedly in my brain. And so his book is called A Strange Loop. I'm a strange loop. And his argument is, as human beings, we are strange loops, and our loops interpenetrate each other. And this is the most local thing imaginable the most particular and most relational thing imaginable. And yet a vast society of 330 million depends on this local connection and hundreds and hundreds and millions and millions of these local connections. What does a nation have? It has some basic level of trust. It has some basic level of fraternity that we basically understand each other at some level, some assumed common humanity. It has a common story. In America, our story and the story here is an exodus story. We left oppression, we crossed the wilderness, we came to the promised land, and we tried to build that land. Moses was going to be on the great seal of the United States. Benjamin Franklin wanted him there. Martin Luther King talked more about exodus than he did about the New Testament. For immigrant groups, for people in this church, exodus is the great story and the great unifying story for our country. We also need a great common project, things we do together. In Genesis, the creation of the universe is described in nine verses. In Exodus, the creation of the tabernacle goes on for 300 verses. Why does it go on for so long? It's because the Israelites were a fractious people who needed to be unified into a common people. And if you want to unify a people, they have to be able to work together on a common project. My favorite definition of community comes from Jane Jacobs. She was living in the west side of New York City, and this was about 1962. And she's upstairs uh, looking out over the street. She's on her second floor apartment, and she sees a guy pulling a nine-year-old girl angrily. And Jane Jacobs doesn't know if it's a kidnapping or just a father disciplining his daughter. So she's about to go down to check out the situation just to make sure it's not a kidnapping. But as she's walking down, she looks out over um, the streetscape and notices the butcher has come out of his butcher shop. The lady at the fruit stand has come out into the street. The locksmith has come out into the street. And she writes, that guy didn't realize it, but he was surrounded. There were people there ready to act if he did anything wrong. And that's, to me, what community is. It's a bunch of people looking after each other, a bunch of people seeing each other and seeing each other deeply. 
taking the time to really enter into relationship with each other and to depend upon one another and to buttress each other's stories and to buttress each other's behavior. Anne and I have a friend who lives in North Louisiana and his sister named Ruthie died at a tragically young age. And she was a school teacher and everybody loved her in this town. And um, she did one thing for the town on Christmas Eve, which was that she would go to the cemetery and she would put a lighted candle on every gravestone uh, just to recognize the dead on Christmas Eve. And she died just around Christmas time. And Rod, our friend, asked his mom, do you want to go to the cemetery tonight and do what Ruthie used to do, put the candle up there? And his mom said, you know, I'll do it in future years, but it, it would just wreck me. It's just too soon. And so they decided not to do it, and they drove across town to a family's house, and they happened to drive past the cemetery, and they saw that somebody else had put a candle on every gravestone. And that is sort of what happens in community. The behaviors, the norms, the gifts get replicated and spread around from people who are deeply engaged and deeply seeing one another. And to me, the end result of all this is a sort of joyfulness. You can be happy alone. You win a game, you get a promotion, you feel big about yourself. Happiness is the expansion of self, but joy is the merger of self. It's the kind of thing that happens when you forget where you end and something else begins, when you really are seeing deeply into each other. I have a friend named Christian Wyman who's a poet living in Prague, and he was writing his poetry in the kitchen table, and a falcon happened to land on the windowsill. And he stared at this bird, and he was stunned by its beauty. And he called his girlfriend who was in the shower, come here, you got to see this. His girlfriend rushes out, dripping wet, and they're just staring at the beauty of the bird. And then the bird, which had been looking at the street, turns and locks eyes with Wyman. And Wyman and the bird are just looking at each other. And Wyman feels, he says, I felt my stomach crumble in. I felt I was looking into centuries. He's having a moment with eternal creation. And his girlfriend understood the importance of the moment and said, make a wish, make a wish. And Wyman wrote a poem, a stanza of which is, and I wished and I wished and I wished and I wished that that moment would never end. And just like that, it vanished. And so what I've been talking about today is something that seems apolitical, not about democracy. It's just simply seeing each other. And yet it seems to me that is the glue that holds us all together. We're trying to do something that's never been done before and something that's phenomenally hard. We're trying to build the first mass multicultural democracy. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Seeing Our True Potential Character with thoughts from Christine Hansen and David Brooks. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.